Welcome back to the King's Hall. We've got a little bit of a different episode here before we jump in. If you're new here, weird that you're listening to this episode first. I'm actually but, not new here. But uh, Eric Kahn, say hi to the guests. Hey. Welcome to the King's Hall. Uh, what is Dresden Bunk's shoulder? Say hi to the guests. I look at Dan's face. I wish people could see the look on Dan's face. So even before this show, Dan, you and I were getting warmed up. We had a spirited conversation. Yeah, we, we Which may <laughs> or may not have gotten in a little tiff. The thing is, Dan got in a tiff. I didn't. <laughs> oh, it's it's continuing. <laughs> I'm Dan. It's a joke. I can't. It's I can't decide joke. whether I'm going to quit the King's Hall oh, or no. if I'm just going to fire you guys. Oh. Well, you're the president, oh. Brian. I, I will pay you $10,000 to vote with me to fire Eric. I Eric is worth more than 10 grand to me. But 15? Done. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There's only one right way Dan to settle this and that's fisticuffs. Brian, I, what you would what have to happening? punch up. It's really to a Gentlemen, disadvantage. Everybody, everybody, welcome back. To the Sometimes in the Kings Hall sparks fly. Sometimes there's misunderstandings, but Because we're kings. We have swords. Kings kings get over it. Kings answer listener questions. Yes. And that's what we're doing today here in the Kings Hall. Uh, we decided that, you know, we get quite a few questions from all of the various media. Media media already is plural. It's plural of medium. Yeah, you we learned discovered that. last week. You learned that, yeah. I learned that from Eric Kahn last week. So from all of our various channels, we get lots of questions through uh, over the weeks, and, and we realized that we were dumb. We should do a Q&A episode. We should take some of these questions. So we put out a call on our signal group, our Patreon signal group. We put out a call on the Twitter, and we said, what questions do you guys have from the first season so far of the King's Hall? We figured this would be a way to get figure out how you guys are reacting to what we're saying, um, what we've maybe been unclear about, where we can get even more practical. And so we're going to be going through some of these questions and uh, doing our best to answer them. Some of them... I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think are 100% serious. For example, J. Chase Davis asked, biblical inseam length for shorts on men. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think it should be probably between, I'd say nine inches above the knee. So whatever (laughs) it is, if you've seen South Africans or Rhodesians in shorts, I think anything longer than that is actually sinful. Inappropriate. It's actually sinful. Wow, okay. It's rebellion against God. So this is an example of the kind of content that we're going to be bringing to you today someone also asked why does brian sove have a premium Pornhub account that was nancy uh, morris and uh answer nancy i i actually don't so um i apologize thank you, for, thank you for your question yeah though. thank you for your honest question wasn't loaded at all uh musculus also asked why are you gay to which thomas jefferson responded who says i'm gay <laughs> And I love the internet. I screenshotted that. So thank you. you? Thank you. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen. But uh, let's get into some real real questions here. Uh, and, and the first question from Brian of Alexandria on Twitter. He, he asked, tell us the story of the journey of reformation your church has gone on. You guys speak often of all the changes over the last years. And any advice you have for pastors who are trying to shepherd in similar ways and directions. So I thought maybe Dan... Actually, I think this is a good question for me. I think, <laughs> having not been here. Yeah, that's a good point. Eric, the main reformation was Eric Kahn moved here at one point, and that just changed everything. Uh, yeah, what did that look like for our church? And uh, any yep. advice for pastors, even specifically, we're trying to shepherd in similar ways. Oh, man, how far back do you go? All right. Exactly. Once upon a time in a land of mountains and snow. Under the stars. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like the new cold open. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so our church has gone undergone quite the transformation. So when Brian took over as the primary teaching pastor some years ago, long time ago now, yeah. uh, the church was actually a Calvary Chapel church. So Brian had just turned 13. Yeah, 13 and a half. Well, you say that, but it was like 20. So, I mean, it really wasn't. Technically, I was 25 at this point. Oh, okay. Or no, 24. I was going to be 25 in two months. Yeah. You want to tell the story? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, so, I, I don't. So Brian, Brian took over the church uh, the primary as a primary teaching pastor of the church. And we were a Calvary Chapel, so charismatic, dispensational. 
uh, Arminian to some degree. And uh, Brian was teaching verse by verse, serial expositional preaching. Great, great. Uh, we love that you know, type of preaching. Yeah. Through the book of Genesis, gets to the end of Genesis, and Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And from that point on, I mean, the dominoes started to fall. Uh, Brian led the elder team into Calvinism. I was mostly there. A lot of us were mostly there. Yeah. Because of the young, restless, and reform movement anyway. Mm-hmm. And my influences growing up with John Piper, the church that I grew up in, uh, was just 90 miles from Bethlehem Baptist Church. Just yeah. for people who are wondering, because I actually wasn't familiar with this, what is Calvary's, I guess, default position with Calvinism? Hostile. Okay. Yeah. 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 Typically. And and I can't speak for them where they are now okay. because we left a, a long time ago. I had just heard maybe like 10 years ago, I, I had heard a Calvary pastor's, he more or less equated it with heresy. So I didn't know if that was indicative of, you know, broader movement or if it was yeah. just. You had a, a divide. There was a debate even around that time. Uh, basically, you're in the midst of the YR, the Young Restless Reformed movement. And there's this big debate. Should Calvary Chapel be Calvinist friendly or Calvinist free? Mm. Like, do we want to kick them all out or do we want to be friendly to them? Okay. Even, even like we're not going to have them as pastors. But for example, and this is funny that this was the controversy. I remember it. There was a big controversy that Costa Mesa was going to invite Ed Stetzer to speak at a conference, and he's a Calvinist, which is really funny. Like, he was way too... <laughs> he was too much? Yeah, too much. Oh, wow. So there was a big debate, but generally not not pleased. Very dispensational and very, um, very hostile to the term Probably Calvinist or Arminian, to be honest. They they would really? say more like we're not either. Are they? Um, and I'm sorry to interrupt Dan's story, but are they no creed but the Bible folks, or do, do they assent mm. to any creeds? I'm sure you get all flavors because they yeah. claim not to be a denomination, but they have like doctrinal They're, standards. So you're yeah. going to find variations throughout. So anyway, um, from the point of ref- reforming, you know that point, many dominoes fell as far as theological convictions to to lead to where we are now. The difficult part, though, was leading people through these changes. Yes. And so a, a lot of the people that were attending the church did not have the same theological convictions that we did. And so they had joined a different church. Mm-hmm. And now it was different. This is the hard part about changing a church, uh, is that you have people that they signed up, they were there's no membership in Calvary Chapel, but they're members of the church and the, the doctrinal standards of the church and the teaching all changed. Yeah. And so we had many, many years of turnover in the church and have since essentially replanted, I mean, an entire new church, an entirely new church in that time. So there are very few people that are, still here from the original church. That's really, it was, it's very difficult work. Yeah. It's very hard on leadership and on the sheep. Yeah. To make changes. Any changes at all are, yeah. are very difficult. You know, you hear, you hear the trope about like arguing over the carpet color. Well, that's, I mean, that's a real thing. Anytime there's change, people have to be shepherded through that. And mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, most people decided that they weren't going to follow us on that. And, and part of that as well is you have to be aware as a leader of your, of your capital, that every time you're asking somebody to follow you somewhere that they are not, you're asking them to follow you because they're not there yet. You're saying, come over here with yeah, me. Trust me. Yeah, you're, you're asking, you're taking a withdrawal out of a bank account. You're writing a check. And, and the thing is, if you don't have enough money in the account, it bounces. And so, I mean, you can be sympathetic with people who, who left over Absolutely. the years because yeah. i'm 24 some left better than others but yeah there was sin for sure for sure and and there's been lessons learned for for us as well um but it, it, a lot of those people were, were like yeah I, I don't i don't trust this this pastor i don't trust these guys i don't believe this i think some tips you you do want to make sure that you're right <laughs> i mean obviously you want to make sure that you're biblically convinced that you're prepared to argue for the position that you believe is biblical. Let's say you're like, we're going to get rid of kids ministry and family integrate, which we think you should do. Um, 
you're you're going to write a check. Well, think about all the different ways that you can communicate about that, that you can win. You're trying to win the people. And so it's really not that hard to win an argument once yeah. you figure out that you do have the high ground yeah. on some of these things. Um, but it is really, really difficult to win the person. Yep. That's the hard part. Because you can give the most sound theological, biblical, scriptural, you know, backing for your yeah. argument, and they're just they just don't like you. I mean, or or whatever it is, if yeah. you don't win their heart, don't respect and it, you. And and so, as far as advice, uh, this is a daunting task, and it is genuinely very difficult, and it is very noble work to mm-hmm. do the work of reformation in a church that already exists. But do not overestimate your ability <laughs> to be able to convince anybody of anything. Correct. And yep. I mean, I, I don't mean to sound like a downer, but try to change somebody's mind on some of these theological things is very, very difficult. Mm, yep, yep. I think one of the things that, that I noticed in, in coming here too, though, is that you guys had, first of all, each other, mm-hmm. and then eventually worked to create an elder board that was united. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm curious your thoughts. One of the mistakes I see a lot of pastors make is they may not even be the lead pastor in their church and they're like, Oh yeah, I'm going to reform this church. And like, they don't have any support from leadership, maybe like one person in the church. Sort of like if you're going to sail the sea, the winds also have to be right. Like some things have to go your way. How big of a thing was it to like Brian to have Dan helping push with you? Cause you guys were going the same direction. Yeah. It wouldn't have worked without, without Dan without you don't, know don't blame me <laughs> it's all Dan, it's all Dan's fault it's all Dan's fault no it, it it did require having people on your side even though we said we like the whole church turned over for the most part over that was a process of several years so you can weather that only if you have people with you and only if the church is continuing to function and be and do what a church is supposed to be and do. I'm not saying like we dropped a bomb, everybody left the next week. And then we just said, well, here we are. No, it was, we were pastoring people through this whole thing. Not all of it was about, there's the normal pastoral stuff going on, but if not for the fact, the first thing I told the elder team actually was, um, I'm convinced of this doctrine. I'd like to discuss it with you guys. And if, if you can refute it and show that I'm, incorrect i will of course change my mind i'll go back you know I'll, I'll retreat and say i was wrong but um i also said i'll I'll leave if you'd like me to if the elders say that you know we're we're not we're not that church we're not willing to consider that um i would have willingly stepped down and said that's fine i, I can't preach in good conscience here because i'm convinced that i can't preach through whole books of the bible <laughs> and then like every time something related to soteriology comes up, be like, and I'm going to recuse myself from this text kind of wouldn't work. Yeah. So I think it's important, like um, to your point, Eric, that you're, you have to be willing to admit when you shouldn't try to reform something and when you should actually peaceably separate and go somewhere else. Even if you're the pastor, like if you look at your church and, and our church had a tumultuous and short history before this. Okay, if it was a different story, and we were, and I was the fifth generation pastor in a long line of Calvary chapels with a well-established everybody's Calvary chapel, it would have been actually probably sinful of me to, to come in there and blow the thing up over something like that. It'd be, I mean, if you're in an SBC church, it's always been an SBC church, and all of a sudden you're like, I would like to be a confessionally Westminster confession church. You should Pro- just go. You should just go. I mean, you yeah. should really just leave. It's not fair to that church that's been built by multiple generations of people. It was, a, and honestly, it was an, an unusual circumstance in our church. I'll say that unusual circumstance due to our region, the demographics of our region in terms of its Christian population, the history of our church, the planting pastor having disqualified himself from ministry early on, leaving a pretty tumultuous lot of new converts who weren't like Calvary Chapel to the core. They were new converts who just happened to be saved in the midst of this work. And then just a lot of, a ton of our people were Calvinists too already. Like a good, a good number of them were Calvinists because of the influence of people like Mark Driscoll. So I would say for, for a lot of guys, you should be very, very slow to try to, uh, especially to the degree that you are a, a one guy 
Was there a, was there a point, Dan, where you, because like Brian's saying, you know, you wouldn't normally counsel somebody to go through that much change in that short a time. Yeah, but there can be reasons that it's a you know a good idea to do so. Was there a point when you just realized, look, we we are having a lot of change. We just need to, you know, we realize where we're going. We just need to hit that mark. I think recently, even we were talking about that with being dual practice. Yeah, between credo and and, and we're going to get there too. Yeah. So w- again, the rate of change. Yeah, I guess the pace of change that. is really important. Yeah. So so like Brian was saying, you have a certain amount of like capital in your account, trust with the people, and anytime that you have a change, you're you're withdrawing on that account, and it is important to have a slower uh, pace. And looking back, having the benefit of hindsight, there are some things where. I would have moved slower and some things I would have gone faster. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because of convictions, you know, uh, in, in especially the liturgy and things like yeah. that. But, but the, the point is uh, anytime you're leading anything, even your family, something like that, and you're, you're going to make these changes. It, one of the worst ways that you can lead, unless you're talking about like wholesale repentance, you were in unrepentant sin and you need to, turn to righteousness. I just mean like in management, especially in in direction of leadership is to just change everything all at the same time. You're almost guaranteed to really screw things up. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody says like, Oh, you're a, you're a 500 pound morbidly obese person with all of these diseases. You know what you should do is not take any medication. You should fast and start trying to do a marathon. Like that'd be really dumb. You should try to run a marathon tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll die. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, the pace of change like. is really important. Uh, but like like Brian said, our situation was not normal. Yeah, it wasn't normal. Because our church was so new and there was so much turnover already because mm-hmm. of the disqualification of the the planting pastor who had a very strong personality, very strong uh, orating, uh, rhetorical gifts. Yes. And, and so he attracted a lot of people because of his personality and his mm-hmm. giftings. Yeah. And then when he was disqualified and removed... Uh, a lot of people left anyway because they wanted him back, you know? And so you had, you didn't have stable foundations anyway. And so, so it wasn't a healthy church when, when Brian took over because the guy who had uh, been part of the succession plan uh, ultimately didn't want to be the lead pastor and left to do missions. So anyway, it was, it's just a really messy story. Yeah. And (laughs) I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And some of those previous pastors actually ended up calling me and being like, we wouldn't have left you in charge if we had known that you were going to make the church Calvinist. And I was like, well, you probably shouldn't have committed adultery. <laughs> like, I mean, at, at that point, it's kind of that sort of situation. So yeah. there comes a point I identify strongly with pastor Doug Wilson in his story of, they were a kind of a normal Baptist church. And he was, from what I understand, he was the guy with the guitar, like he led worship. And then for whatever reason, the pastor kind of said, I'm out. Good luck. And then he was the last guy standing. And like subsequently over the years became a Calvinist became and post-millennialist, yeah. you know, became and all these different things he became and the church went with him. And I can't think of many other examples other than Christ Church and our church that have had that progression because both circumstances started with something crazy. Well, and, and not ideal. <laughs> and, and a lot of what you see in the mainstream is actually the opposite direction. Like churches are changing, but they're drifting. They're drifting towards wokeness. Yeah, and here we are saying like institutional rot. So you do, you have to, um, if you're going to do any sort of reform work, the Lord will provide this over the years if you stick it out, but you have to have a spine. You have to have a thick skin. You have to be willing to, to hear people that loved you 10 minutes ago say, I don't respect you. You're a cult leader. Yes. You've ruined the church. And and not just like this is used to be in the past. I mean, this was like just this week, Dan Dan told me about someone who had left our church and said, yeah, one of their main things was they don't respect you. And I was like, okay, all right. And that's that was only part of the three-hour conversation, so. <laughs> you got to get used to these things. So it's like you have to have a spine, you have to yeah. have a, a target, and you have to read the situation. Don't try to be the maverick guy that's like going in and blowing up a church that is basically healthy and established in its doctrine, and you're in there and you're just like a guy that's swinging a hammer. Well, I mean, on the one hand, you're probably not going to accomplish much anyway, but you're probably actually being illegitimate. You wouldn't want somebody to come into your church 
that's a stat. Like, let's say our church, someone came in and they said, this church needs to become Arminian. We'd be like, <laughs> no. Scram. We'd say no. So related to this, related to this, um, a question we got many times when we called for questions was, and this is specifically from KR Occidental Localist. He said, I want the story of how each of you moved from Baptist to Presbyterian theology. I don't think I've ever heard any of you tell your story. Maybe the process of how refuge transitioned from 1689 to CREC. We're not actually in the CREC, but I, I get what they mean because we have a dual practice. CREC allows multiple confessions. And he says, no, this isn't just nosiness. This is personally relevant to me and my wife, to which Matt Carabini uh, <laughs> said, I concur, but actually I do want to hear out of nosiness. So, um, Eric, because well, we were all Baptists. Yeah, so I actually I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary mm-hmm. uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, was talking about this recently on Twitter. A lot of reason I got into Reformed theology and the old Reformers, uh, you know, old dead Puritans and stuff like that, was because of John Piper. Um, his preaching, he it was expositional, obviously had Reformed tinges to it, is what I would say now. Yeah. Um, so I went to Southern Seminary, not really understanding those categories, um, and just in the process of being there, got exposed to I, what I would say is like actual Reformed theology, but also Reformed ecclesiology. Mm. So one of the things I started to realize that was if, if, like I was at the time, if I was a Reformed Baptist, I was basically adopting Reformed soteriology, but not ecclesiology. Which can be done. Obviously, there are good, yeah, sure. good, good brothers who do that. Um, what I became increasingly uncomfortable with in my own life were um, really looking at, okay, my soteriology is here, but all these guys that I love shared very, very different views on the church and how the church, you know, including like worship and, and what should be going on in the church. So I started reading that. Um, and, and like many people, like if you're switching from Arminianism to Calvinism or, you know, Baptist to Presbyterian, there was like, this is a process, right? So we were really wrestling with issues. Um, one of the things that got me though, was we were in a Baptist church and I'm, I'm reading all this covenant theology and my oldest son is like three and a half maybe. And we're taking communion. And he reaches for the communion tray and he says to me, daddy, why don't, you know, why not me? And I said, well, you, you've got to, you've got to be a Christian. And he said, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died for my sins, you know, in a three-year-old kind of way. And that really got me thinking, like, what do we do about these kids? Because at Southern, we weren't just, you know, there's a lot of Reformed Baptists now, uh, even the guys in our church, like they're typically baptizing pretty young. And they're also very comfortable with, even before like children's I was a pedo baptist I was, you would you would hear me preach, people would say, are you a Presbyterian? Because I, I would preach very strongly about right. the inclusion of our children in this visible church thing, and that Paul says that they're yeah. holy, and, you know, they are in a, there's a different category, seemingly, that they are in than the children of pagans. And at that time I explained it in, in more of a, through a, a, a more of a Baptistic way, but yeah, I mean, I was saying a lot of the same thing because I, I thought those were clear to me in scripture, but go ahead. Yeah. So that really got me thinking about children, the covenant, uh, wh- what do we do with these issues? And uh, I know people have gotten upset with me for saying this, but I, I, I feel like when I was in the Baptist camp, we always tended to straw man Presbyterians. So even in seminary, I, was, I, I remember asking a professor, I said, so, so what is the Presbyterian view on this? And they would say things like, well, they believe that baptism is baptismal regeneration. And you're like, well, actually. And now I look back and I'm like, that, that's really not a fair that's not the Presbyterian view. No, that's not for, a fair for, assessment of, yeah. of what the Presbyterian view is at all. So anyway, I started looking into this. Um, by God's providence, I, I found a community pres in Louisville. Bill Smith was there. He was pastoring. He's now in the CRC in Illinois, Carbondale. And I think it was so helpful for me because Bill had been, I think, in the SBC. He was Baptist. And he had made the transition. 
So he was really helpful in answering a lot of questions, mm-hmm. being patient. The issue that sealed it, I, I'm reading to a thousand generations, but the issue that sealed it for me was, I, okay, so I'd been in these Baptist churches and like we would not commune an infant baptized person. Okay. Like you cannot be a member of our church. You have Come to Ill- the table. illegitimate baptism. Like it's an absolute, you know, we're dividing over that issue. Sure. And I said to Bill, I said, well, I don't know. I don't think I'm a, a pedo Baptist at this point. I know you probably won't let me be a member at your church. And he looked at me funny and he was like, basically starts repeating the creed in the Nicene Creed. He said, do you believe these things? I was like, yeah, I believe all that. He's like, welcome. You know, welcome to the Lord's table. Mm. Welcome to membership. Like you can't be an elder. Sure. Um, you can't be a teaching elder. Um, but I, I, that, that changed things for me because I thought it was the first time I'd ever heard somebody say, yeah, we shouldn't excommunicate people for their view on baptism mm-hmm. is what that amounted to. Anyway, uh, long story short, we continued digging, reading. Um, all my kids were baptized. We were practicing uh, pedo communion eventually as well. It's pretty natural that that, that that leads you into the CREC, mm-hmm. um, which we had been part of. That's that's what I was doing, pastoral ministry work in, and then uh, now here. So. Yep, yep. Daniel. What about you, Dan? You want me to tell the whole story, huh? You, j- however so, yeah. however you so, feel led. <clears throat> Let's go back to our how, Calvary Chapel. How do I feel led? Dan, how do you feel led? <laughs> okay, no, no, that's <laughs> yeah. Never, I, you're not being led by the spirit right now. Uh, I, actually, <laughs> I actually brought a yeah. shofar yeah. today. <laughs> You know, it's it. Out of all of the things that that Brian and I have argued over, nothing have we argued over more than covenant theology yeah. mm-hmm. as it relates to baptism. I mean, for years and years hours, and, hours. Mm-hmm. and we would take competing positions, uh, as naturally would occur between Brian and I as we argue. Yeah, we we can't come to an agreement right away. We must fight. It's this is how the, this is how it's done. Yeah, yeah. You got to test a view. You got to see: can I defend this view? Anthony Asselin calls this the agon. Right, you have to wrestle and fight with ideas. Yeah, yeah. And how can you do that other than saying, "Tell me why I'm wrong." Yeah, and I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. And we're probably not going to agree at the end of three hours, but over some time, you do start to, yeah. I think, test yeah. and prove out different arguments and and disprove other ones. Yeah, so, I mean, the story is quite messy simply because it took so many years, three years probably, to come to these convictions completely, enough to the point where you're like, no, I must act on them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it all is introduced from covenant theology and the nature of the covenant, you know, and how they operate. And so, I mean, that was was really the the entry into into, uh, pedo-baptism. You know, it's just the nature of the covenants. Then there's also some things like, um, you know, reading um, the distinctiveness of Baptist covenant theology. Who, who wrote pa- that? Pascal Denault, a Pascal book Denault. originally yeah. written in French, since translated to English in multiple editions. And it's one of the better books that you can read. It's a good book. To understand a critique of Pado-Baptist Presbyterian covenant theology over against uh, a particular Baptist covenant theology. Yeah, and so one of the one of the strongest arguments I think from that book against paedobaptism was the argument that what is the newness of the new covenant? How does one enter the new covenant? And it is by new birth. And so when I read that, I'm like, okay, I'm satisfied for a time, and then I kept chewing on it and chewing on it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, but there are some passages that don't seem to talk like that. They don't seem to talk like that, especially the apostasy passages right. seem to be particularly troublesome. And I know there's a you know, sixteen eighty niners that, uh, like, I respect you guys. I don't, I don't have yeah. any. All of the things we're going to bring up, we're Renahan or yeah, Doctor yeah. White or uh, Pascal Denal or a lot of you guys could come up with very compelling, biblically coherent answers to. And I understand that there's a reason yeah. that this is still a debate. Welcome and come to the table. Yeah, we love like. you. We're not, um, <laughs> you know, we're not. We are really not. I'm answering this question. We got it a lot. We're not interested in an in intramural fight. And I think you'll see that by the end and how we describe where our church is right now. Well, but and yeah. I, I would just interject. One of the reasons that I think we have been friends with and appreciated what was going on in the CREC. Of course, I was in it for a long time. Um, is because we could say, look, yeah, you have two camps. 
Mm-hmm. Both brothers, love you. Yeah. Welcome. We're, we don't think this is an issue to divide our churches over. Right. And and you're Christians, we're Christians. Yeah. These are both orthodox positions. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, Dan. We both, I interrupted you, then Eric interrupted you. And now. Yeah, start talking so I can interrupt you oh. again. <laughs> That's... I, you know what's really funny is I saw multiple comments about that and I didn't even notice. It's just normal amongst our conversations. But anyway. <laughs> So there, I was saying like there are certain problem passages or passages that yeah. are problematic for that view. And again, I'm sure that there's scholars that could give an answer that would be sure. satisfying to them. It wasn't to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's particularly like John 15. Yeah. Where, where he, you know, Jesus is saying, um, he who abides in me will bear much fruit. Mm-hmm. And uh, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burn. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about that, like there are branches that are grafted into this vine, which is Christ. They're connected to Christ somehow mm-hmm. and they don't produce fruit. And yeah. so they're thrown away. They're broken off. Right. And so just just in Dan, really simple, not a professional scholarly theologian. I look at that and just the sniff test, like the blue mm-hmm. collar, like, huh, what does that mean? Well, it seems like there are people that are part of the covenant. They're connected to Christ in some way. And I would say they are in the new covenant in yep. some way. They're not regenerate though. So they don't produce fruit. Yeah. And that is ultimately proved out when you have a branch and you're like, where's the fruit? This is a grapevine. There's no fruit. It gets cut off or broken off and it gets thrown away into the fire. Damnation. And so there are people yeah. that are connected to the, to the vine in some way that apostatize and then they're thrown into the fire. Yeah. And so I read that and I'm like, I don't think that, the new birth and new covenant is quite as clean as you're making it. And mm-hmm. so ultimately that was like the, the, the thing that was keeping me a Baptist, a credo mm-hmm. Baptist. And when I started looking at some of these apostasy passages, ultimately I had to say, I don't think that that's a very good argument. Yeah. And so that was just one of the linchpins amongst years of thought and discussion and reading. It's not something that I came to quickly it's not like I, I watched uh, Doug Wilson something on YouTube and was like a video. Yeah, I now I'm going to baptize my children. Yep. No, no. These these decisions, because especially because I'm not a free agent. Right. I'm not just like a guy coming to a church, you know, that has a family. I have hundreds of people that I'm responsible for yep. leading. And so these decisions have a lot of gravity. Yep. Especially when you've changed your mind before, going back to the first question, yeah. when you've had to change your mind before in leading people through that, the cost is unbelievably high. Yes. You know, people will hate you. Mm-hmm. They will malign your character. Yeah. They will start competing churches mm-hmm. that exist as the, we're not them church. Yeah, sure. And there are gossip mills that exist because of a lot of these things. And so I, I just preface that as saying like, we don't make these decisions flippantly. No, we do not. So, yeah, what about you, Brian? Very similar. Very similar. Um, veggie tales. A lot of veggie tales. Um, God is bigger than the boogeyman. I mean, for real, for real, no cap. Uh, FR, FR. Dan's, this is why we need video. Dan's I, shaking I, his head. I, I don't want bussin, you to say that. Bussin, his beard is again. wagging yeah, at I'm me. I'm wagging my beard. Yeah, he's like, no. Okay, so f- a few things. I was convinced of a Presbyterian form of government before I was convinced of, of Presbyterian covenant theology. That is true. Um, yes. We had long, as a church, permitted or received people who were not just paedo-baptists, but had only received baptism as an infant into membership and communion at our church. We'd already done that. We've long had a population or a percentage of the congregation then that have been Presbyterians. Sometimes multiple, like third generation Presbyterians, just we've always been Presbyterian. Sometimes new Presbyterians, sometimes people who weren't, and then they became them during their stay at our church. That should also give you an idea of the pulse of the Presbyterian church in Utah. Yeah, yeah. So you look at, in Utah, again, people who aren't in our context won't fully get. If you are anything reformed at all, any kind of confessionally reformed, whether London Baptist, Westminster, anything, you're, you have very few options, right? You're going to look around. And then when you start to get into some issues where some London confessors are much closer to some Westminster confessors around other issues like patriarchy, how to engage the culture, Christian education. So there's a, you know, there's a London confessing church 
close to ours that is utterly unlike us, even though we, we overlap in a, lo- a lot of our confessional theology pretty directly because they would anathematize what we say about education or say that it's absolutely binding conscience, it's wicked, it's legalism, it's, you know, I'm a cult leader, all these things. On paper, we overlap 80 plus percent, and um, but they, they hate our guts. So if you're somebody who leans on a lot of these issues our way and you're Presbyterian, or and, and you're even now, let's say you're 1689 confessor, you don't like that I baptize babies or sprinkle, but you, you're going to be like, huh, there's not a ton of options. You might end up at our church. So it's you, the best of bad options, right? That's what we, tr- that's what we aim to be. <laughs> we aim to be the best of the worst. The best of the worst. Dan should be in charge of the church marketing. Yeah. Look, I, well, just, we're the hey, best of the worst, hey, you know, no looking at, you know, looking at our demographic matters and it does affect things. We've always, I mean, we will, we would go with the reformers and uh, we would receive Roman Catholic infant baptism for purposes of membership that that kind of thing. So we've always been somewhat strange as a Baptist church. We've always taken exception from the the language of the 1689 with respect to the mode where I again, before I became a pedo Baptist, I had already been convinced by various passages of scripture that immersion was not the only permissible mode of baptism, but that immersion, pouring or sprinkling were all valid modes of water baptism. Fire hose yeah, fire hose. Oh boy, it's COVID squirt gun. You know, mm, not sure about that. But no, really though, that was I, I had come, become convinced of that from just looking at the nature of the word. The for baptize, washing, we're not immersing a couch. There's no clear like verse in the scriptures that demand immersion. As much as I've read the arguments, I'm just not convinced by them. So, so dominoes fall there. You know, very much convinced of that kind of Denaltian federalism, that London Baptist uh, and 1689 federalism view, had some critiques about uh, some some issues with, uh, you know, classic, like, is the new covenant mixed or unmixed? As Dan said, can you be in the new covenant in any sense and not be regenerate and elect? And, and, and I think, I, again, like I know our Baptist brothers have answers to these. I don't want them to think we're straw manning them. To me, it's utterly clear that you can be in the new covenant in some sense. Externally. Externally. It, with respect to its external administration, not be elect, not be regenerate, be broken off. And the reason I say that is, again, John 15, the branches aren't duct taped to the vine. They don't just appear to be connected to the vine. They have to be broken off in Jesus vernacular. I'm not going way out on a limb here <laughs> in oh. interpreting in interpreting the because sometimes you can take a symbolic language and like press it way further than it's meant to but I, I don't think I think you're understanding it precisely if you say Jesus is talking about different types of branches all connected to the same thing I look at the Hebrew apostasy passages and to to steal from Pastor Douglas Wilson I don't think the apostasy warnings are like beware of cliff signs in the middle of Kansas. And that's actually, uh, you know, in Baptist theology, that was one of the the other things that I didn't mention. Like Tom Schreiner, I think, was teaching at the time that, like, these are hypothetical warnings. It's like a cliff sign, but there aren't actually any cliffs. It it is a means of God's preservation of his saints. But you can't actually. And I I am just not persuaded of that view. Some of these guys, and there's more, like, (laughs) again, this was years and hours of conversation. So... It wasn't any one pastor, any one book. It wasn't any. In fact, I read quite a few of the Presbyterian books early on, and I was like, eh, I'm not convinced by these. Well, that was actually one of the early things for me, and there's great writers on both sides of this issue, but I read Sean Wright's book on baptism, yeah, Believer's Baptism, as a Baptist, and I read it, and I was like, I don't know. I'm not really buying this. Like, I was a Baptist, a fully convinced Baptist. Mm -hmm. I read that. And that was one of the first things that kind of sent me saying, yeah. I, I want to see the other side yeah. of this. And, and here's another one. So last week I tweeted that my children were holy from the moment of their existence, their conception, that, that because they were children of believers, they were holy in a way that Muslim children, Hindu children, et cetera, were not. I ended up deleting that tweet, guys, not because I disagree with it, but because since the modesty thing, I've never had so many libs trying to cancel me. And at one point I was like, we have a, had a lot going on in the church. 
pastorally. And uh, so no time for I didn't have time for the blocking and the whatnot. So I just, I was like, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm just going to delete it so that they can't keep tagging me in it. And I saw that Dr. White had addressed it on the dividing line. I've never listened to an episode of the dividing line. I have not listened to this one either. But from my understanding from, you know, other people listening to it, Dr. White seems to think that I was talking about some kind of baptismal regeneration or um, not even baptismal, I guess, but as if they were holy in the sense they're justified, they're elect, they're regenerate, which is not what I meant. I meant what Paul says in 1 Corinthians seven fourteen that the children of one or more believers are holy. And I understand that Dr. White takes the position of the legitimacy view of that passage, which is a common and fine view of the passage. There are arguments in its favor. If I didn't hold the view I hold, it, that would be the second in line view in my understanding, I think it's the second strongest interpretation of that passage. Where I fall away from it, AKA again, the first loser. <laughs> the first loser. No, exactly. You're not first. I'm not last. convinced by it. But again, <laughs> Let's be real. Where I where I disagree with that interpretation is again a, a reason. One of the same connected reasons why I ended up embracing a Presbyterian view of the covenants, and it is because I I I think it does violence to the passage to say, as Dr. White did on Twitter, that what Paul is saying means that the children of Muslims are holy in the same in the way the same way he's saying the children of believers are holy, in that they're if their legitimate. marriage is legitimate, they're not bastards, they're born in a legitimate marriage, then they're holy. And to me, I think it that, that does violence to the text. I think that Paul is quite clear that he's saying something that is peculiar to Christian believers because they are believers. And and the thing I think he's saying is that they are holy in that they are a part of the external administration of the covenant. In the same way that if you were born in the covenant nation in the Old Testament, you were a part of the holy nation. You were corporately holy. And you I, belonged to that body. You needed new birth. You needed regeneration as our children do. What I'm talking about, guys, is classic Westminsterian Presbyterian covenant theology. Yeah, you see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Like, read the book as a cohesive unit. Yep. They all passed through the sea. Yeah. They even drank from the rock that was Christ. Yeah, they were baptized. And God was not pleased with most of them. Yeah. For the project of this season to be successful, the project of seeing a new Christendom built, there will need to be thousands and thousands of Christian men and women who are equipped to stand for the truth of Scripture against the errors of both the liberal church and the pagan culture. This is one reason we're so glad to be partnering with our sponsor for this season, Reformation Heritage Books. Reformation Heritage Books offers a large selection of helpful and theologically rigorous resources on everything from biblical theology to history to blue-collar family discipleship, the type of library and resources that could make the kind of men and women I just described grounded in the rich heritage of the Reformed faith. We'd like to highlight one resource in particular, their Family Worship Bible Guide, that presents rich devotional thoughts on all 1,189 chapters of the Bible, including searching questions to promote conversation and to help you in leading your family in such a way as to say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Tap the link in the description of this episode to pick one up today. So I think a lot of us share similar root reasons. A lot of it has to yeah. do with the status of children as something different from the children of pagans, I've always, I've always objected, even when I was a particular Baptist, in the strongest terms, would object to the statement that our children are vipers and diapers, or that our children, literally, people were arguing with me last week, they're like, no, our children are, are pagans. They're heathens. They're heathens. Yeah. And, and I just think, I think that biblically, the biblical authors would say that's nonsense. I don't believe that's I also that's think it's, it's, and I, feel like I can say this having been a, a Baptist in those camps. I think most of those people are just heinously inconsistent too. That was kind of my feeling was like, you don't actually treat your kid like a pagan. No. Yeah. And that was part of the litmus test. When, when somebody, when somebody came to me, uh, you know, we're, we're making this transition in the church mm -hmm. and they're like, well, I just, I just don't see how you could get there. They're not convinced. Like I'm not going to do a debate with James white, you know, style with, yeah. with the congregant that's sitting across from right. me. Who just hears like regular teaching? He reads his Bible every day. Yeah, 
the the thing that's most convincing to the, to them i'm not trying to change their mind necessarily in the moment i'm just trying to show them hey this is this is how i think about it and it it has to do with a lot of what you said you don't treat your child like you do the short haired butch lesbian at work like you're not you're you're teaching your children how to pray you're teaching them do, how to worship you're teaching them to memorize you're scripture teaching them to obey the scriptures absolutely and when they do so there were a few guys at southern seminary i remember don whitney saying this Don was trying to be consistent because he mm-hmm. recognized that there was inconsistency. So Don said, when my children pray, I teach them to pray. And when it, when they finish, I tell them, God did not hear you. Yeah, You're see, a pagan. I, th- I think that man is a monster. I think that's actually a wicked Oof. thing. If that's what he said. Yeah, I, and I don't, I don't think, again, not we're not strong any Baptists. I know most of you wouldn't say anything like that. But I think that, that picture's like... But it's an example of the tension that, that, yes. that I resolve biblically by seeing this continuity of, of status between the old and the new covenant, this continuity of category, continuity of typology, a continuity that I think would have required some serious explanation in the New Testament that this feature had changed, and what I think would have resulted in serious argument early in the church history that we would have record of when they changed from the apostolic teaching of immersion baptism for um, professors only to infant baptism, I think we would see a record of debate in the early church, in the first five centuries of the church, that is absent from the record. Argument from silence, yeah, I, I totally no, understand. It's an argument from silence. But, there uh, is no such thing as a legitimate argument from silence. We heard Brian. that once, yeah. and it's actually not true. An argument from silence is a probabilistic argument. So it has, by its nature, it's not saying that it proves deductively that something is true. Yeah. But it just says it's more likely than not that this silence is explained by this this fact it's up for debate but it's just one brick i'm just gonna say there's more evidence for the existence of dragons than there is for the debate of baptism dragons are 100 percent real i mean psalm 91 dragons for example there. right there one psalm of the things that i wanted to say that, that i thought was cool ahead, sorry we're talking about two views on baptism and again we've we've been on both sides of it one thing I think is cool in our church is the ability to talk about these things in a non-hostile way. I'm going to kill you. Yeah. yeah. Or like I, I still have Baptist friends in my life who are like trying to stick me in the side with a dagger. Uh, like they're yeah. like, I would never let my daughter marry your son because he is infant baptized and therefore a pagan. Like they'll say things like that. And I'm like, okay, dude, chill. So <laughs> overall, I know there's been a lot of hubbub, the cross politics stuff, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Overall, I would say this. On this issue, we're brothers. Mm-hmm. Lighten up, Francis. We love like, you guys. Let's just lighten up. Yeah. We love each other. Guess what's going to happen in same church team, this Sunday? Same team. And everybody in our church yeah. gets along. Wait, what's going to happen this Sunday? This Sunday in our church, we're going to baptize three Christians who are Christians by profession. We're going to immerse them. The parents are Creed Baptists. We're going to baptize... Three other, it's actually funny, it's the same number. We're going to baptize three other children. This will be like the third time we've done this? Yeah, whose parents are pedobaptists. And uh, we're going to get along. And at the end of that... No one's mouth will be frothed. As a church, we're going to stand and we're going to charge them. For you, Christ died. For you, And we're going to give them the congregational charge. We're going to love one another. Um, and we're going to agree. Here, here's the point that I think is most important. The thing I'm more convinced of than any other aspect in this debate is that we should get along. Because I can step into the particular Baptist framework. I can answer the problem passages from their perspective, that the, all the passages we brought up. I can give what used to be to me a persuasive response and is, remains persuasive to many Christians. They can say, on the regulative principle, there is no command to baptize infants. Therefore, you cannot require me to baptize infants. And I would say, sure, okay, I love you. I think what you're saying is Christian theology. We disagree about some of these things. These are in the weeds things. And I can now, of course, I'm convinced by the view, obviously, I can step into the Presbyterian covenant theological framework and I can answer the problem passages that a particular Baptist would bring to me persuasively and obviously to many. Where I where I really strongly uh, react is, and this is, to be fair, more common from particular Baptists, just because of the nature of their view. I really strongly have a problem with the idea that there basically was very little actual baptism 
for maybe a thousand years. I think that's a very difficult position to sustain in a non-restorationist manner. Yeah. So I have a I have a real problem with barring the table from John Calvin or barring him membership. And obviously, even as a particular Baptist had that reaction because we allowed pedo you know, infant baptized Presbyterians in membership. So this has clearly been an area where we never were fully 1689. To be fair, someone's going to say you weren't 1689. You took exception on these two key areas. I'm like, on yeah, baptism. We did. <laughs> on mode of baptism. We still baptized by immersion and we would never have performed an infant baptism. But um, so again, like I love Tom Askell. I, I love my particular Baptist brothers and sisters. I don't think that they are guilty of um, many of the errors of revivalism and individualism that have been shot through popular evangelical Baptist culture that have been, you know, of I'm talking about pop Arminian dominant SBC culture. I would not accuse my particular Baptist brothers of those errors. Like, no, I don't. Who would have thought he's such errors. a winsome guy? I know. So you I mean, you'd, you'd see his Twitter and you'd think the guy's a real jerk. People really no. do actually, I think, have a wildly inaccurate um, view of what I'm like. You're just too serrated edge for me. Even when I read my Twitter, I go back and I'm like, I don't feel like most of this is hammer stuff. Anyway, you're way more of a hammer than me. What Eric. other tool is there? Both of you guys. <laughs> both of you guys are just really sweet men. Sweet. Yeah, we are sweet. I'm the sweet psalmist of Ogden. According to the Carpenter King of Maine, so yeah, well, dove, I, dovetail dro- dovetail dire, dire Carpenter yep. King of Maine. Okay, next question. Next question. This is somewhat related. I thought this was a very interesting question from Aaron Bear of the Undragoned Podcast. He says, "In one of the early episodes, you guys lay out a definition of Reformed Catholicity. This is a lot of what we're talking about. Getting along. This is my comments. Getting along across Reformed differences, like even baptism stuff." Continuing, he says. A guy you commonly refer back to, and I think you mentioned wanting him to be a guest of some sort, is Esselin. He's referring to Anthony Esselin. So question, what is your justification for promoting Reformed Catholicity while heavily utilizing a Roman Catholic? I'm doing some interpretation because he uses the acronym RC for Reformed Catholicity, and that also happens to be an acronym for Roman Catholicism. But he spelled that out. So I'm trying, Aaron, if we got this question wrong, Kurt, feel free to tweet at us, but I think I think he's saying, "What's your justification for promoting Reformed Catholicity while heavily utilizing a Roman Catholic?" To think of it a little more broadly, in the face of an increasingly syncretist church, how can your vision of Reformed Catholicity stay faithful when grabbing and promoting ideas from individuals outside the tent of Reformed Catholicity? So my immediate response to this is, I don't think all Roman Catholics are outside the tent of Reformed Catholicity. Agree, disagree. Depends what you mean. Yeah, it depends on the guy. Well, I mean, I think everyone would say it depends on what you... Yeah. Like, is the Roman Catholic theology former or proper uh, heretical in a depends. false gospel? Which one? I think, yes. Like, the the doctrine of salvation in Trent, Council of Trent. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah. I think their Marian dogma is clearly um, heretical. Um, I would say purgatory is a wildly unbiblical fanciful view. Um, I think their sacramentology is, which is, I mean, obviously a part of their soteriology because we're talking about infusions of grace through these. I think those are very problematic. I do think there are regenerate people in the Roman Catholic tent. That's what I would say. But to his point, I mean, it's a fair, they're not reformed. Right, they're not if, reformed. If I'm reading his RC, I think that's what he means by RC. Yeah, I think so. They're not reformed. Yeah. But, but I guess, yeah, so I'm saying they're not reformed. Obviously, they're not reformed. Right, and, and well, I think... we but, would say, you know, Peter Lightheart has made this point even, that we're trying to we're trying to bring it all back together. I would love to see the Roman Catholic yeah. Church repent and be reunited. Yeah, absolutely. We're all aiming for that in a non-like um, shallow ecumenicism. So to his, what, what I think Aaron's getting at is that one of the things that we would criticize is this syncretism where you're like taking all these different things and mashing them together in this like lowest common denominator, pop yeah. faith, pop secular, ecumenicalism. spiritual, ecumenicalism. Yeah. Absolutely, that's anathema. We want highbrow theology. We want it to be biblical. We want it to be cask strength. All of that's true. And on those things, if Anthony Eslin and us sat down and started talking about Mary uh, the papal system, so, soteriology, you would hear us disagreeing 
with Anthony. I'm, I mean, I'm sure. But the things that we tell you guys, hey, Anthony's really good on this, or Eslin's really good on this. They're, they're not about those doctrines. They're about his cultural commentary. So I'd appeal to him in the same way that I would appeal to uh, a professor of history who does really good work. Like to the same way I'd say Paul Johnson has excellent work on American history. And I don't know if I actually don't know if Paul Johnson is a Christian or not. He probably is, but or was. I think he's gone. I don't know. But that man. that's the interesting question. Yeah. Um, is are we allowed to read oh. authors outside of our immediate tradition? Yeah. And find valuable things from them. I think the the issue is you have to have discernment. Yes. You have to apply the things that are really good. I mean, I read Pat Buchanan. I think Pat's also Roman Catholic. I think you're right, but I, I can't say it with confidence. I'll look it up. So, you know, great stuff there as well from Pat. I'm not going to not read him just because he's a Roman Catholic. Uh, again, I mean, even with people within the Reformed uh, Catholicity, Reformed camp, uh, we would say, yeah, I mean, I... I definitely don't agree with, you know, uh, a lot of things that a lot of people say, mm-hmm. um, social theory, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. So I, I think we need to get away from this idea that reading a guy and saying this thing about a guy is good is a carte blanche endorsement of everything. And if, yeah. if we had to only endorse people or only, you know, mention people that we fully endorsed everything. Yeah. I mean, that would well, be almost no one. Well, I mean, look at, the thing is, we'd be saying, well, Lutherans are out, baptismal regeneration, so are Anglicans. Brandon Meeks is out, baptismal regeneration. So are a lot of the fathers that taught baptismal regeneration of some sort. You start looking at, that's just one issue, and you go, yep, they're out. I mean, I guess we can't we can't promote or talk about them. And uh, I, I think that that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake also when you fail to recognize that um, – historically, if you're going to talk about Reformed Catholicity in a historic way, you're going to have to recognize that the true church, and I mean the elect, has been intermingled throughout all sorts of problematic systems and groups throughout history. And that, you know, like we we have a classical Christian school. A huge amount of the classical Christian schooling tradition comes from the education of monks, and priests of clergy in this, in a lot of the ways, Roman Catholic system. It's not until we get to, you know, the Reformation that you start to see. And actually, I, then, I do think that's a good example of, of where Protestant scholars took and actually corrected some of the errors of Roman Catholicism and ended up saying things like, we should actually educate more people than just clergy and noblemen because of the priesthood of all believers. And that was a a, cor- a doctrinal correction that Protestantism brought to the classical tradition and improved it. I think we see the fruit of that today in, in many ways. So I think we'd all probably agree there that we're not saying you should swim the Tiber by saying Anthony Eslin's a guy you should read. No. I mean, just like if we if we recommend like, hey, you should, you should read Jordan Peterson's uh, 12 Rules for Life. It's got some really helpful insights mm-hmm. in there. I wouldn't take your theological instruction. Don't from become him. Jungian. No, no. I mean, that's <laughs> not the goal. But you know, you you steal wisdom from the uh, plunder of the Egyptians. You know, so that's that's how I'd approach a lot of these guys. It's really helpful to know the author, the time period that it was written, the particular uh, ditches that they're going to fall into. Yeah. I mean, like I was talking to Brian the other day about um, reading a certain Victorian era person, and they're like yeah, eugenics were actually like a thing at the time. So you have to be aware of that Rousseauian romanticism. Yep. You know, things like that. You just have to be aware when you're reading. It's, it's, it's just part of being discerning uh, when you're reading these people. Well, I wonder if I could ask, there's another question on here Yeah. and maybe we close with it. Yeah. um, Cause we're at that, at that mark. Uh, This is from Jordan and he says, how do you decide? I'm assuming this is a guy. Sorry if you're a girl. Uh, How do you decide? It is a a guy, but okay. How do you decide when to cut ties and when to be co-belligerent? I'm often surprised who gets praise and who gets criticism. Maybe I'm reading too much into the criticism, though. For example, Mahaney and Piper get criticism. Elon Musk gets praise. Yeah, I was actually going to read that one next. I thought it was such a good question. Okay, good. Yeah. Brilliant minds thinking alike. And I was also going to... This is funny. We didn't plan it. I was also going to say, hey, guys, for our last question. Oh, nice. Look at us, Eric. We're just... We just... We're locked in right now across the King's Hall table. It's cute. 
Pilot so and cute. co-pilot, Stan. Yeah, man. So, uh, yeah, what's going on there? Why Why do we, you know, we've said some things critical of Piper with pietism. We've said some critical things of Mahaney. We, you know, promoted, in one of our cold opens, we told a story from Elon Musk and made a positive application from it. If I could take a crack at it, oh, I was, yeah, I was wondering. I was going to say, silence silence. Was like, yeah, I got, I got something. Yeah, I'll, and then I'll, I'll pass it over to Dan. My the first thing I'll say, I'll just keep it very narrow because there's more. But would be that in the same way that in Jesus' parables, sometimes he's using examples like the dishonest manager, and then draws a positive point from the dishonest manager. I that's the category I would put our praise, quote unquote, of Elon Musk where we're pointing at something that is good and virtuous. He's an image bearer of God. He has a conscience. Even those who do not know the Lord bear witness to the universality of God's morality in this creation by obeying the law without the law, right? So Elon Musk worked really hard, took risks, did manly, courageous things that are not righteous in the sense that they're not unmixed with sin and they're coming from a place of an unregenerate heart. So they don't merit favor with God. Elon Musk isn't going to get into heaven because God looks at him and says, Elon, you did really good with that, you know, spaceship thing. So uh, come on in, right? We're not saying that. We're using him in a parabolic sort of way in that that instance. So pass it over to Dan. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I have a couple of thoughts. First, the subject matter of the podcast is New Christendom right? The next Christendom, building Christendom. And so you're going to be looking at Christian leaders, Christianity in itself. Are we adopting uh, an Elon Musk model of, is he informing new Christendom? Like, no, he's not part of the foundations of new Christendom. Just like you said, he's a, he's a useful example for some, you know, some of these ideas. He's actually yeah. a, a evil man. He is, uh, it's weird that I brought up eugenics because that's yeah. why he has so many kids with so many different women yeah. is because he wants his genetics into the human gene pool yeah, he's because he thinks pretty highly of himself. I mean, he is the wealthiest man in the world. So it, anyway, I mean, it's the guy's actually quite evil. So, so, so I, I say that this, the second thing is you also have spheres of authority. Mm-hmm. So Elon Musk, is he an authority over the church? No, I mean, just like if this was a political podcast, if he was uh, it, ahead of or had responsibility in the sphere of the state, mm-hmm. he would receive a lot of criticism Yeah, because he's going to be the subject matter of what we're looking at. And he has certain responsibilities. He's just a businessman right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so men like um, Mahaney and Piper are going to get criticized because we're the subject matter and the responsibility that they have is in the sphere of the church. And yeah. so it would make sense that we were going to look at them closer than we would look at Elon Musk. We're not going to take him seriously as far as new Christendom. Like what part does maybe he repents and funds the thing? I don't know, but <laughs> but, awesome. but but he's not even somebody worth taking seriously he in this project. He could Starlink us some better internet so it doesn't take so long to upload the King's Hall video to YouTube. Yeah. That'd be great. Elon. I mean, sure. Point one of your satellites this way, man. Okay. Well, Eric, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. So I was thinking of something that Brian said based on the gospels. And, and again, you know, please don't take this too far. It's not a one-to-one, but you know, we have like a, a, a Pharisee and a publican, the publican in Jesus story is like being celebrated for true repentance. And the guy, so Jesus tells these stories that are kind of like, they flip things on their head. Mm-hmm. So why do I talk about John Piper and pietism so much? Because I think that's such a critical issue that we get wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I think also people don't hear me often saying positive things. The other day, I, you know, I was talking about how John Piper's preaching on suffering is some of the best preaching I think I've ever heard yeah, yeah. on a topic. I still think his okay. pietism stuff has done a lot of damage in, in the church. Um, and I don't even think that John Piper is necessarily meaning to do that damage. No, uh, he's very sincere. He's a very he's sincere He's not a guy. grifter. No, I don't see him that no, way no, no, at no. all. Yeah. Um, I've taken... I guess, criticism for criticizing John Piper uh, from some people. Uh, Same with C.J. Mahaney. I don't know these guys personally. I'm just, you know, kind of reporting a lot of the things that we've seen publicly. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Mahaney came up in Big, Fast, and Famous. Um, And then then to Dan's point, like, it's, it's odd that sometimes, so I'm looking at what are the main issues affecting the church, 
And what I happen to see is a lot of the main issues evangelical leaders are getting wrong. Yeah. And a lot of the main issues, in some ways, people like Jordan Peterson are getting more right than the evangelical establishment. Uh, there's a lot of issues like masculinity. I know that he's a Jungian atheist, and that's why it's so sad that Jordan Peterson is better than Russell Moore. Mm. So I think sometimes we're using that kind of foil of like, man, you'd think somebody within the church would have something positive to say on these issues. And yet, you know, in the same way that the Gospels do this, people on the outside seem to get it. People on the inside don't. Yeah, um, it, It's a little bit of that interplay. And again, I just go back to this. Read with discernment. Mm-hmm. We're not endorsing, you know, Jordan Peterson and everything that he says. Yeah. I mean, obviously we've criticized the, the, I don't even, so some of this comment, I don't even think is totally fair. Like we blasted Jordan Peterson in the daily wire. Over oh the, yeah, we did. Over I forgot Dave, about Dave that. Rubin stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did. So where criticism is due, you'll receive it. And where praise is due, you'll receive it. Yeah. And, and all of it's going to be from our assessment with the data we have. And of course you're, you are free to make arguments that we've gotten this or that wrong that's what we do all day. I mean, not all day, but I mean, this is like, this is what the work of theology and culture entails is brothers getting together and saying, I think this is true. And someone's saying, I don't think that's quite it. And here's why. And you, you, you work and you sharpen one another and you end up with truth. We're not handing this podcast down from on high as the inerrant word of God. This is, this is our attempts at saying, here are some important things a worthy end that we're aiming, that we think you should aim for and point your, your sails into. Yeah, let's build the new Christendom. And this is what where we think it's gone wrong. Here's where we think it could be improved. We're going to have more to say through the season. And uh, we'd invite your criticisms. We'd invite your conversation and uh, your feedback. So um, that's going to be about it for this episode. But I think we'll do this again. We've got actually quite a few more really good questions on the list. We're just out of time for today. So expect another one of these episodes in the near future, uh, Lord willing. Look, working through some of your questions, and because uh, you guys have had some really good ones that I think, particularly some we didn't get to, in getting even more blue collar in applying some of the principles that we've um, been expounding in this season. So keep them coming. We do, of course, want to thank our sponsors for this episode. One of them, actually, I just saw a guy on Twitter uh, tweet, "Hey, Reformation Heritage Books." Bible worship study guide that we've been encouraging you guys to check out this season. They're like, it's the best resource I have on my shelf. And I'm like, amen. So go check them out. Check out Reformation Heritage Books. We have a link in the description of the show. Check out Christendom Bible College for some guys that are doing good work in promoting robust Christian higher education. Um, But thanks for listening. And as always, remember, Winkit Quisa Winkit, he conquers who conquers himself. See you next time.